This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Like the kōkako, the saddleback, or tieke, belongs to the New Zealand wattlebird family. A family to which the huia belonged and which has been established in this country since ancient times, much longer than most of our other birds. The saddleback takes its name from the bright reddish saddle on its back, which according to legend is the mark of Maui's hand. Sadly, this attractive bird has disappeared from the main islands and exists only on a few offshore islands, carefully chosen locations for resettlement away from predators, which appears to have saved the tieke from total extinction. Community or chaos, we can construct and nurture community or fall into chaos. Over the next hour, Marvin Hubbard hosts conversations toward creating a fairer, more equal society. Community or Chaos is made possible with the support of Quakers Aotearoa. You'll find them online at quaker.org.nz. Good day, friends. Today we have with us Murray Grimwood a, um, talking about the future is a small farm or a small farm future. And Murray Grimwood's family lives sustainably off the grid with a carbon sink forest and vegetable garden. He built his house for $50,000 off the grid and has few gadgets or appliances in his off the grid house, but keeps things to a minimum. And he has enough power to run simple things like wood stove, which doesn't, of course, take power, and um, cell phones and laptops and such, but nothing fancy. Well, Murray, um, what did you first... You can podcast this by going to oar.org.nz, oar.org.nz, and then going to podcasting, going to community or chaos. And now we'll talk about the possible futures of New Zealand and other, other parts of the world. Could you briefly talk about your impression of Chris Smidgey's book, A Small Farm Future. Um, okay, I haven't read the whole book. I've read excerpts of it as it turns up on a um, particular site that deals in these things. Um, but by and large, I'm in line with the author's um, premise is that we've been complexifying ourselves for years and years and um, we've been complexifying ourselves for um, forever, and the, there comes a stage where you cannot carry the level of complexity and interrelationships of things um, in society. And what what will end up is devolving back down to a simpler, more maintainable, and inevitably more rural lifestyle. Um, the influx of people into cities that happened in the last 200 years because of fossil fuels um, after all no city was over a million people um, in 1800 
London was knocking on the door of a million people, no, no other city got close. So every city that's more, of, more than a million people, you can assume without fossil fuels um, is going to be in trouble. And I anticipate an exodus of people the same way they came into the cities, they'll be heading back out to places where they can find food production space because at the end of the day, food production is some um, kind of non-negotiable. Is it likely that we really will... I sometimes think the short-term future is either a highly technological, urbanised secure, security state I th- or a... Decentralised rural societies. There is there is a race on between high tech and collapse. Um, I think collapse will win, on the grounds that it's a game of Russian roulette, and sooner or later, the the bullet is in the chamber that you pull the trigger on. Um, technology is what has got us this far for two hundred years, and we've had some major get out of jail free cards, or at least get out of jail cards. I don't know if it was free. No. Like we've luckily stumbled on the ozone hole and sort of fixed it um, and we s- sort of got onto thalidomide and we sort of got onto asbestos but a lot of these things are retroactive and lucky um, what we aren't dealing with and haven't had an answer to is the fact that we've overpopulated ourselves and are running down resources and my um, my thought is that technology can't solve our way out of that would you want it to, considering the kind of technological society we'd probably end up with? Well, well, the the front end of the technological argument, the Musk end, probably wants to somehow assimilate their brains with AI so they sort of don't die. I think it's a it's another way of trying to sort out immortality. Well, that's, but, that's crazy. I mean, that's an insane idea, isn't it? Well, not if you're in, in it and think you're one of the winners who wants to keep his brain going. What but, if you're... Um, <laughs> um, a lot of uh, physical scientists uh, the, don't think that's possible. The problem is, of course, that we're all part of a, a species that evolves, and that requires reproduction and mutation and ongoing change. And if you start stopping at one particular generation and trying to keep it alive by whatever means, even if it's technological, then you've stopped the evolution ability, so you've stopped your adaptive ability. So sooner or later your species will walk into a corner where it can't survive, and that's what happened to the likes of the saber-toothed tiger. And I think it would happen to technologically AI'd human brains. There, there we go. All right. <laughs> An esoteric argument. <laughs> Do you think that um, a small farm economy can generate prosperity, or is that irrelevant in the face of climate change? Um, I don't emphasize climate change like most people do. I regard it as the exhaust pipe of our problem. Our problem is our massive, massive energy use on this planet and and the fact that we apply that energy to doing so many things. Um, measuring climate and worrying about climate, that's, that's just the exhaust pipe. Um, so... 
I see it more as a resource depletion and energy depletion problem and a, and a which balls do we keep in the air problem. So it's a triage thing. Um, and I see that showing up now with decaying infrastructure, bursting pipes, um, three waters is, is an, a reaction to, a, to this problem. Um, the centralisation of polytechs is a reaction to this problem. Um, in all cases, governments are trying to solve this problem by by centralising and and reducing what they think is overheads, but they aren't dealing with the actual problem. And so, I don't think climate change is is what you really need to focus on. What you need to focus on is resource depletion versus overpopulation and how to get that back to sustainable levels. How a small farm economy fits into that perspective is absolutely it does. Um, When you come right back down to it, it, the equation is people per sunlit acre, right? The only input gain of energy into this planet is a sunlit acre. And fossil fuels just happen to be an underground stored store of ancient sunlit acres. That's all it was, old animals, old trees. And so we're going through that one-off blip of stored solar energy in a flash in less than 300 years. And then we'll be back to real-time sunlit acres, and that is real-time food production, real-time firewood production. That's all we'll have to work with. The only thing we'll have that's a little different from the ancient past is that we will have a collection of stuff we've built in the recent past sitting there that we might be able to adapt to help use us to use to do things. Asia lived like that for a long time, didn't it? Uh, yes. Asian small, far- small farms, vegetable gardens, raising pigs and chickens. Well, <coughs> That was a way of life for many of most Asians. Um, what we would call good quality peasant life is sustainable, more or less. Um, they re, they, their nutrients are more or less recycled. Um, their drawdown of resources is not great. Um, there are records, of course, of, of that even that lifestyle overstepping the mark and leaving nothing but desert and ruins behind. But... But by and large, yes, that way of life is sustainable. We also have scientific smarts now that if we don't lose that knowledge, and if you can imagine the internet crashing, we could lose an awful lot awful quickly now because we're busy burning books. But if we keep that scientific knowledge, then we are ahead of those people in the past in terms of maintaining um, soil quality chemistry, that kind of thing. The danger is that we decide not to monitor or that we decide not to apply discretionary effort to keeping track of these things. And we're already watching that now when um, people like freshwater ecologist Mike Joy finds that he doesn't get funding in the rounds because his findings might be deleterious to those who need to make money out of the soil quick smart. And so we have to have a system where we keep track of our science. And if we do, um, that system has to be honest. Oh, well, we, I've, had this, I've had thoughts about... I have been focused perhaps too much on climate change, but I had thoughts that maybe early in the 
science 30 or 40 years should have been more honest and not being afraid of scaring the horses? I think the scientists were honest, but also science is also, um, what's the word, modest? And they also, because they're scientists, realise that they might have a chance of being wrong and there's a percentile chance of that and that science is evolving. That doesn't mean it's wrong. What it means is it's open to evolving. Um, there's quite a big difference there and, and those who would rubbish science jump on that gap as if, if science is wrong. Um, the consensus of science on things like climate is irrefutable and, and you have to be some kind of propagandist or vested interest to, to deny it now. But unfortunately climate change has become the discussion point and it is a long term background drumbeat to our problem. It's not the big problem, which is the fact that there are six or seven billion too many people on the planet, too many of our species displacing other species. What do you think about countries like Italy and Spain and maybe China in the future where the population is actually going down? Um, Economists see that as a huge problem. I know. Um, Ecologists will tell you it's a win, absolute in spades. those countries have nothing to fear except envy and um, intrusion. And this is now the problem, and that those who are overpopulated in run-down areas are migrating in ever greater numbers towards those countries because they look great from the outside. And we are potentially in that same position. Why isolation helpers? Mm-hmm. Will our isolation help us? Um, it depends. If you're invaded, you have to decide whether to defend yourselves or to succumb. Um, I'm not sure isolation can help you there. Um, the Swiss are the only ones who've pulled it off successfully, and they do it by having a gun in every house. <laughs> um, yeah, don't know. But we we probably in New Zealand will have to have that discussion at some stage about whether we defend ourselves or not. And I, I don't think we're mature enough to be having that discussion at the moment. What modern technology here is sal- salvageable in principle in New Zealand, and how do you see us in the 75 years' time? That's a great question. Um, we will be going with trying to triage and su- sustain some of the stuff that we have. So... If you look at what roads are made of, they're made of imported bitumen, which is fossil fuels. If you look at what railways are made of, they're made of steel tracks, but they don't deteriorate very fast and they're already mostly in position. So I see rail outlasting bitumen roads as a service for travel. And I think politicians are probably onto that, although they're not explaining why. But that this recent move about putting money into rail is absolutely a correct move. Um, beyond that we're having a question and a debate which is an isolated one about whether to develop Lake Onslow as a battery so the idea at Lake Onslow is that we have um, water down low and water up high and when the wind blows or the sun shines we can use that energy to pump the water up to the high pond and when we need it in peak loads or whatever um, or dry periods we can drop the water down from the high pond to the bottom pond or or let it go and use the power from that drop 
to smooth over that peak load. So they're calling it battery project, and that's correct. Water at height is a battery. In fact, it's the most benign energy battery you can possibly have. So, But the question about Onslow now, 20 years ago, it was a no-brainer. We should have done it. Bang. The problem with Onslow now is I don't know whether we have the lead time left on the planet with supply of energy and resources to actually do it. We'd have to do it as a crash course. And I remember the days of Twizel and the Waitaki projects. They took forever. Now, I don't know whether we have what it takes to do that flat out. The second thing is it does assume that we can keep the national grid going in its present form. And nobody is having that debate. Can we do that? as things start to subside? Can we find fuel for the utes, for the guys who go out and hang the wires and keep the insulators done and the bus bars going? And the, you know, I don't know. We haven't had that discussion. Large trucks have to be driven by carbon, but do utes? Uh, I'm... I mean, I'm, I think most of our travel is discretionary, and when the chips are down... You don't have to drive to the beach on a Sunday for an ice cream. Um, yeah, tradies utes, tradies don't really need utes. Um, it's, it's an ego thing and, and a convenience thing, but you can get by with much smaller vehicles than, than the... Well, I've got an accent. I mean, the accent is one of the smaller. And yeah. I'm very pleased because I, look, I pay yeah. about $70 uh, every couple of months for fuel. Um, I, I'm sure that we can adapt more than we think we can to that kind of transport. Also, I use my bike most of right. the time. Right. I'm, I'm 80 yeah. years Oh, I shouldn't be yeah. telling you. Yeah. Some, of the, um, some of the things that will transform, I think, simpler tractors. I think tractors have got a little too technological. Um, some generations of tractor back there, you can sort of feed them to buy a diesel off your own farm and keep trucking them. Um, and I think we'll do that, like Cuba. I, I think Cuba is a good um, example of where I think we'll go as a country. So, yeah, tractors will try and keep running. Um, I think, I'm not sure if we're getting ahead of our discussion here, but I think um, farms will get smaller. The, the dairying milk powder to China model is is not sustainable. Um, it's intakes of phosphate and fossil fuels and other things and its outputs of things like nitrates are not Mm -hmm. sustainable and so I think we're going to somehow 50 years from now we'll have smaller farms, more vegetables and and more biodiversity on the farms and more people per acre doing it now how we get from here to there without disjunction I do not know some people are going to lose Big time. Yeah. The um, do you th- do you envision electric cars for people like doctors, for people look like looking after the uh, power network? I suspect we're going to have to triage, and I s- that means that we really need some kind of governance. 
and governance requires some time, some kind of rules and some kind of imposition of penalties if you transgress the rules. Otherwise, you've got chaos. And if you're going to have things like prioritising vehicles for doctors and ambulances and, and fuel for rescue helicopters, somewhere society is going to have to make its choice about what it allocates where. We can't even seem to make our choices about fair taxes. Well, one of the big things all of us don't um, put in fairly is the ob- our obligation to future generations. If you think about the North American Indian approach, which was um, they thought in terms of the seventh generation ahead, right? so roughly 200 years, and you think they thought was it going to be appreciated or not by that generation now the and only the Amish uh, think that way the Europeans right the problem is none of us think that way even us at the front end of this sort of thinking we all sort of be a wee bit more immediate than that yeah. and so we're tending to put ourselves against the head of the future and that's why we're drawing down resources that um, we ought to be really thinking about sharing with them so so it becomes a philosophical, philosophical um, debate. I often wonder whether we should have a commissioner acting on behalf of each of those generations. So you can imagine seven commissioners with equal voting rights turning up in a, in a tribunal and an environment court um, with equal voting rights, and our generation has one, right, versus right. seven. Can you imagine the outcomes and the, and the angst from our generation? Yes. And... And we don't even have those seven, of course. We, we've purposely eliminated them. We just vote for ourselves. Okay, I'm going to play some music now, and then we'll continue. Sorry about that. Men walking along the railroad track Going someplace and there's no going back Highway patrol choppers coming up over the ridge Hot soup on a campfire in the bridge Shelter line stretching around the corner Welcome to the new world order Family sleeping in their car in the southwest Home, no job, no peace, no rest Well, the highway is alive tonight But nobody's kidding nobody about where it goes I'm sitting down here in the campfire line Searching for the ghost of Tom Joe He pulls a prayer book out of his sleeping bag Preacher lights up a butt and takes a drag Waiting for when the last shall be first and the first shall be last In a cardboard box near the underpass Got a one-way ticket to the promised land You got a hole in your belly and a gun in your hand Sleeping on a pillow of solid rock Breathing in the city, I'm going down. The 
That was the ghost of Tom Joad from the Grapes of Wrath and the Great Depression and the when the Dust Bowl hit the United States. Only this was modernized to some extent. This highway's going nowhere. Um, can you talk about the idea that we're living in? Well, up until the 70s, it seemed like the economy was based on making things. And now it's just based on moving symbols around. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's still based on making things, but we got other people to make them cheaper in places with no environmental re- safeguards. So um, and when I was young, I guess that place was Japan. Um, and after that, it became like China and nowadays Vietnam, Bangladesh, Mexico and and whoever wants to underbid the last one um, so no we're still making those things and we're still consuming more of those things than we ever did um, you've only got to look at some of the the cheap junk shops and the strip malls to um, to see the junk that we buy and throw out almost immediately to the landfills um, no we're doing that but what we're doing in the first world is pretending that we're rich enough to buy that stuff and the pretense has been that banks issue digital numbers, which they call money, but it's actually debt. And we pay that back by increasing the value of things that we already own because we're not actually doing anything. So in recent years, we've increased the value of things like houses 
and other collectible items we've decided we can up the value of. And against them we borrow. And that's what we've been, quote, spending, unquote, on this cheap stuff that we've got some other person to make for less than we would make it ourselves. And so where the Rust Belt was in the US after World War II, where they built all the Chevrolets and Buicks and all the rest of it, um, the people are out of work. But you can't put them back in work because they would expect a car to be built cheaper than their wages would require it to be built at. In other words, every, everyone in the first world has got used to third world la- labour costs being the value of the things we buy. And in essence, we're levering ourselves on other people and other places. Would you agree this is a sin of cheapness? Yeah. Um, if you valued resources at their real value, including their total depletion, like anything that's mined out of the planet is finite, right? Copper, fossil fuels, Anything you mine is by definition finite. The planet's finite. You can argue how much and how long at what rate. Nonetheless, it's finite. And so ultimately things ought to get more expensive until they're exponentially so expensive that nobody can afford them. That would be the correct market pricing of things that are finite. We don't do that. We've decided that we can kid ourselves that we can find replacements for everything if they get scarce, and that the idea is to have production en masse, um, uh, we've applied technology to things and we decide that things have got cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. Um, That cannot be, because what you need in the end is tomorrow there has to be more resources and more energy so that you can repay the debt that you've borrowed today. And of course there aren't more resources and more energy and there hasn't been for quite some, probably a decade now. And so we're overshooting in terms of the debt that we're carrying. And so where all that ends, I don't know, but the debt is symbolic. You can just wipe debt tomorrow um, and the sun will still come up and the sun will still go down and the rain will still pour. The, The problem then is, of course, what's the value of money? And if people lose faith in the value of money and the respect for debt, then how do you trade with people beyond trust distance? You know, I mean, if I look at you and I look in your eyes and I go, oh yeah, I can trust this fella, then I'll trade with you. But if there's somebody on the other side of the planet that you've never met, we trust a banking system and an FOB trading system to allow us to guarantee that we'll get our money from that person if we send something there or vice versa. If you lose that trust because the value of money is gone by us not believing that the debt will be repaid anymore, then how short does trading become? And I suggest it goes right back down to eyeball, which becomes local very quickly. In other words, you're thinking of a Great Depression that is much more major than the 1930s. Oh, um, this will be the one, the first and only time you can run a depression, a proper depression without re- without recovery at global level. This is a one-off event. I wanted to ask about something else about debt. It seems to me that if you go into debt for things you use every day, like uh, petrol or like um, even services, that's a bad thing because you're always running into more. But if you go into debt... Say to build that um, reservoir you're talking about, 
uh, for electricity, or if you're going to debt to replenish rail and maybe make it electric, that's a different story, isn't it? In a sense. Well, well, it's you have still to pay for it still expects that the future or future generations will do the repaying. Well, so the, the future generations, if you do it properly, may have rail, whereas if you don't do it, they won't. Yes, that's absolutely valid. The question is whether they can do the repaying. If they've got no resources, no energy, and they're in a climate-stuffed environment, then the question is, can they do the repaying? And if you validly say, no, they can't, then is that Maybe fair? the debt will have to be forgiven. I'm absolutely convinced that at some stage we will either have rampant inflation, like Weimar Germany did or Zimbabwe has, um, we'll either have that or we'll have a, a debt jubilee or a collapse. Because the numbers just keep going up and there's no way you can reconcile it with the existing planet. What about our tax system? Should people, especially corporations like Google, should they be paying their share? Yes, but it goes more than that. None of us have been paying our fair share, really. Um, there is an argument amongst older people that they paid their taxes all their lives and therefore they deserve a pension. But if you actually do the numbers, nobody pays in enough in taxes to to cover the amount required from pensions and in the process of that pension system era which is sort of World War II to now um, people are now living longer retiring earlier right, starting with debt and so that equation's got even worse nobody is paying in enough to cover what they expect back out of the system at the far end and it sort of worked for a while while government can introduce debt to the system. And it sort of worked for a while while there were more people every year. But it doesn't work with a reducing population or with reducing in energy input. So Macron's uh, right to increase. Uh, Macron is absolutely on the right track, but he's far too late. Um, but his biggest saying was last year when he said that we are now entering an era of, of reduction of abundance. This is the end of abundance. He made that statement quite clearly about October last year, missed completely by the New Zealand media, because I think they don't understand what's happening. Well, that's a brave thing to say for a politician. Well, Macron's got no political capital to worry about. He can't stand for re-election next time. So what he does in the, re the remaining time, he, he can't, it, it, there's no political capital to, to lose. So, it's just so that's why he can be brave. But he's also not stupid. How do we, where do we go from here? How do we? Well, you ask a question there about um, what happens to money and how do we make it less abstract. Indeed, this is where we've gotten into trouble because we've added debt and and multiplication to the, well, exponential multiplication to the issue. Um, so money has to be related back to something that can be really out of, in real terms repaid. So my answer to that is you relate it to energy. And there's a system called TEQs or Total Energy um, Quotients. And the, the idea is that you relate, um, essentially it's a rationing of energy. So money becomes related to 
the jewel, if you want. And all I don't understand or I don't know is how you would do the monitoring of that and the complexity of the monitoring. We already can't monitor carbon emissions. I don't know how we're going to monitor relating energy to money but that's the only way I see that it'll work um, in the past they related gold to money and that worked because gold was finite and scarce And but there's not enough gold on the planet to go anywhere near what their money expectations are now so so gold doesn't work anymore um, Yeah, I, I think at the end of the day maybe no money system works properly what does that mean you just trade in things I suspect that's exactly what we saw when Greece um, fell over people started going to the dentist and paying for their filling with a bag of spuds (laughs) and eyeball trust (laughs) your bag of spuds won't go over well on that Um, but we have to discuss a lot of things like that. A lot of us older people um, rely on the medical system, and the medical system is getting more and more complex, and operations are more and more expensive, i.e. they take more resources to do. And maybe we have to look at the triage of that, and maybe that's uncomfortable for some of us who are getting older. Um, but that's something the medical profession haven't really addressed yet either, Is is... If overpopulation is a problem, then they are part of the problem. It's really hard for them to address it. You ever heard the Hippocratic Oath? Yeah, indeed, indeed. I get the problem. Um, um, yeah, isn't this something we have? Isn't it a political problem? Isn't it something? Is that we aren't the politicians and the economy aren't accountable to nature or to the population and we're not accountable to future generations yep and that has been the demise of every eruption spelt with an i eruption of humans on the planet to date um, all the empires erupted um, overran their resource base overpopulated themselves um, came apart at various rates some collapsed very very quickly um, the mayor for, seemed to be pretty quick um, and they had millions of people in corn to the horizon and they totally denuded the the area of biodiversity um, the Romans took longer to disintegrate they split into two trying to hold it together and retrenched and one of the two lasted out longer than the other but um, now, I understand the population, though, of Europe was seven times as many people before the Rome began their fall until the uh, middle, middle Ages that we, they lost. Well, yeah, they, the, the um, couple of plagues there took out some numbers too. Um, I, think, yeah. I think the way of looking at population is that when Europe started expanding around 1800, and exploring and looking for places to colonise and grab. Um, They did so because Europe was too full. If it hadn't been too full, they wouldn't have been looking elsewhere. And so taking emotion out of it, it was too full. When they got to places like New Zealand, the Europeans saw those places as empty. But the locals saw them as full. Right, The North American Indians... 
the Maori, the Aboriginals, they saw their places as full. And in long-term hindsight, they were correct. The Europeans were the ones who were overpopulated. And so if you relate it to not drawing down resources like fossil fuels, America was probably full by 1870 in sustainable terms. So when the Titanic sailed, it was 50 years after America had already become too full. Right? The lag times and the drawdowns that we don't realise allow us to overpopulate. We don't see it. Um, we don't see that we're pulling down the resources of the planet. They're invisible to us, you know? Uh-huh. Yeah. And so we're in this awful situation that now there will be a readjustment and it won't be pretty. I'm not sure where that came from, from the money thing, but anyway, <laughs> they're all tied up if you stand back far enough. Should economic decisions be regarded as public decisions because they affect all communities, including the natural community? Of course. Um, we're overdue to be changing the way we budget. And and the well-being idea is a part way towards this, but we need to go a lot further, a lot faster. What we budget still, and it's legally required of everybody, is that you budget in money terms. And that's not the question anymore. The budgeting for something like our grid infrastructure should be, will there be enough aluminium, copper and fuel for the utes in, say, 30 years' time to keep this grid going? And so what you really have to allocate, and I know it's hard, but you have to allocate the fossil fuel resource and the copper resource and the aluminium resource to do that maintenance, right? And you have to physically earmark that stuff and set it aside. Now, there's an old um, legend from, I think it's Cambridge, one of the universities, where they had a hall built, I don't know, 500 years ago. And eventually the beams in the hall needed replacing and somebody mentioned this to some of the staff and one of the gardeners turned up and he said, oh, that's what that copse is over there. 500 years ago it was realised that the hall beams would need replacing at some stage and they planted that copse and we gardeners have been looking after it for 500 years and that's where your beams are. We don't do that but that's what we should be doing. And so we should be budgeting in terms of physical resources, including energy, and earmarking that stuff. Should we be using wood in certain ways for all buildings now? Well, I take it back. If we're overpopulated, and in my numbers, but don't don't quote me, do it for yourself. Um, my numbers are that without fossil fuels, New Zealand probably will support two million people. Right. We use food, and the food is essentially we're eating our way through fossil fuels. There's many, many calories of fossil oil and one calorie of food at the supermarket. But if we grew things like the Chinese used to grow things. Well, yes. I mean, they probably got as much per acre. Yeah, but the, if uh, we're looking at reduced population, then what we have is an existing house fleet. And if you halve your population, then you've got two houses per person, right? Okay, so you don't need new buildings. Exactly so. <coughs> hmm. Of course, the problem is to the next 20 years. 
Also, uh, our houses probably aren't used um, as they should be. I mean, <coughs> well, for instance, I'm now in a, a four-room house for one person. I should at least probably be getting at least one more person in my house. Um, I think we're going to go back to greater families. I think we're going to go back to grandparents um, looking after youngsters while the able-bodied are out working. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, and I think that will change the way we use housing. So we're in a bridging time then now. <coughs> yes. Or we should be in a bridging time anyway. Um, what we're in is a linear process where people are born, start to know things, then they're, um, <coughs> excuse me, they're, um, they go to work, then they're on the scrap heap, and then they're off to um, rest homes. And that's linear, you know. Um, in the old days, it was circular. The knowledge that was in the old folks' heads got back to the youngies. Um, so how we recreate that, I do not know. Um, yeah. In some ways, I think we're headed away from that. I mean, and this is a difficult subject, but a lot of our politics is moved toward diversity and division, not toward unity and finding out what we can do together. Um, <clears throat> most of our politics has been towards commodifying things, and eventually we've commodified care <coughs> where it used to be free. <coughs> so how do we make the move or do you think we won't make it until we have to we won't make it until we have to yeah can we prepare for it before we have to perfect thank you um, I've just been fed a glass of water to solve the coughing problem perfect um I think what we have to have is a plan B in place for um, when this happens. So a plan B about small farms, a plan B about food production, a plan B about care, a plan B for where medicine goes, where, where health goes, um, a plan B for where education goes, and maybe it's not applicable in the current system, but it has to be ready because there will be a void that may happen very quickly where current leadership, um, current paradigms, current understandings all of a sudden all are obsolete. And some places it'll be local and some places will be lucky with inspired leadership. And I'm thinking of likes of Gary Moore that was a mayor of Christchurch or... Um, um, Jinting McTavish, who was a councillor in Dunedin. Those people are what I would call inspired leaders who would make it in the transition. There are a lot of people who wouldn't. 
um, who are leaders now, but but won't be in the future. Mm. How do you promote and encourage inspired leadership? Mm-hmm. How do you promote and encourage inspired leadership? Oh, <clears throat> I think you have to have courses on leadership. And I think governments of today, local and central, could do far worse than running leadership courses and getting young people inspired to be leaders and understanding not just how to be leaders but what they're going to be leaders in. In other words, what we've been discussing about um, reduction of, of complexity and simplification and reduction in population and resource use, um, they have to understand that that's the paradigm they will be leaders in. Big countries can be in a similar situation. I mean, China's already beginning to be in that situation. I mean, they need to lose their population. They're losing it. But they haven't figured out what to do. The traditional way of looking after older people uh, sort of has gone because of the, uh, the idea that everybody's working. They made the mistake of trying to be Western. Um, they were doing a lot better <coughs> at peasant level. And unfortunately, all human um, races have have gone down the same track. We all head towards complexity. I don't know why. Well, it seems very attractive unless you realise the problems. Well, indeed. Yeah, yeah. Um, you and I have lived better lives than medieval kings and um, with more diversity and more capability to do things than they ever dreamed of, you know. But... If it's not sustainable, you have to ask the question, what comes next? Yeah. Will you be writing about that? Mm? Will you be writing about that? I write, but my writing is mostly of the warning kind. Um, And more and more I see that as being um, obsolete in that really what we need now is writing of the the book that you mentioned in the first place, um, Small Farm Futures. or even John Seymour's old classic about self-sufficiency. Um, what we really need is more knowledge about primary food production, about um, primary care of biodiversity, about um, preventive health. In other words, rather than dealing with the wave of diabetes, how we deal with running our society so we don't have that wave of diabetes in the first place, you know? I mean, that's one of the things, when you talk about complexity in medicine, a lot of illness is partially the diet and the environment. I mean, not all of it, but a certain... Yeah, you have to be careful with that. You and I have lived longer than prior generations ever did, and we're taller than them too. So some of our diet must be actually beneficial yeah or we're not losing trace elements that were required to get to our heights and longevity so for all that we we in the greener movement sort of chastise um, artificial foods or food additives and things like that the net result is people are living longer and and are growing taller now um what I su- suggest is that we hang on to the science of why that happened, but go back to stuff that is not um, 
unsustainable. So at the moment, the supply of phosphate on the planet is absolutely limited and dwindling fast. And we're down to a few sites on the planet. I think we get ours from Morocco. Um, and I'm not sure that the ownership that we buy it off is the people who actually own it. Um, but what happens when that runs out? And you have to look at where the phosphate goes. It doesn't disintegrate. It goes through our bodies and out to sea and dissipates, you know, in a few parts a million. Um, how do we pick it back up and put it back onto our food land? That's the question. That's what peasant agriculture did, and it's what we don't do. So, yeah, questions about circularising our nutrient flows and things like that. Mm. Do you think more people are hearing what you're saying? Yes. Um, since COVID, since the lockdown and since COVID, yes, there were some people who rebelled about that and decided to go down rabbit holes of conspiracy theories. But there were others who realised that maybe the planet was perhaps in trouble and worked out that, yes, there were too many of us going past each other too fast and that's why the thing spread. And it made a lot of people think, and it also possibly gave people time to sit back and go, eh, what are my values here and what are my priorities and am I living my life um, the way I want to live it? Should we think twice when we get on a plane to visit our families in, um, overseas? We certainly do. Um, we have family overseas, and there is a question mark about that. Um, I had to tell my yep. sister I wasn't coming. Yep. Because um, um, for various reasons, certainly fossil fuels was one of them. Yep. Um, and I don't know. I mean, we're the only generation that ever did this since World War Two. We're the only generation that's flown anywhere. The um, the in the past, like our ancestors who came to New Zealand by sailing ship, they would they would have to write a letter back. And that would take six months to get to England, and then the ship would have to turn around and send another letter back. It would be a year or two years before you knew that a relative had died, and you'd never see that relative once you sailed away from England. That was just how it was, and they all accepted it. Um, we've been lucky. Whether we can keep that up, I'm not sure. Okay. Um, are you hopeful about that? That will make a transition? Every time I look at my grandchildren, and I spend a day a week with my grandchildren, I look at them and I wonder what their world will be and what skills I can give them and what help I can give them to weather what I think's ahead. I don't think they'll live nearly as comfortable a life as I did. Um, and anything I can do to make it better for them, um, you know, I'm in there. Okay, thanks a lot for coming on, and I appreciate your thoughts, and um, hopefully we'll continue thinking about this subject in a positive, greater way. Thanks a lot, Murray. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin, with support from New Zealand On the Air.